Good morning, this is Laura Friedman. I am the president of Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am very happy to have with me today Peter Beinart, who is a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and better known to the world as a journalist and a speaker and an author and an all-around great guy. So Peter, we're really happy to have you with us here today. My pleasure. Um, I thought we could kick it off on this morning, which is the morning after the second of the Democratic debates. Um, I'm assuming that you were following those, if not watching them every minute of it for the past two nights, then certainly watching parts of it and like me following it on Twitter and social media and all of that. Um, one thing that I, has, has come up uh, a fair amount in my circles is the absence of any conversation in these debates about Israel-Palestine, which I think uh, for both of us is interesting because you know we hear this is the constant issue that everybody's talking about all the time. So, um, so what do you think about that? I mean, about the fact that it didn't figure into the debates and how it is figuring into this political cycle for Democrats as we get ready for the 2020 full-on campaign and primary season. Well, one of the striking things about both the debates, uh, it was that there was very little foreign policy discussion in general. I mean, I think the debates were each two and a half hours long, and they really didn't get to foreign policy, except for kind of trade and climate change stuff, until about two hours and 15 minutes. So I think it just testifies to the fact that, you know, we're in a moment, for various reasons, where foreign policy is not at the center of public conversation in general. And then in a that, you know, there's a little bit of Afghanistan, a little bit of Iran. Um, I suspect that as, you know, if you think about the 2016 campaign, I think it was really when they got to the New York primary, surprise, surprise, um, that you had the most significant debate about Israel. So I imagine that as you get towards that um, with the larger Jewish constituencies, it'll come up. But it's largely a function, I think, also of just the fact that things are relatively quiet on the ground. Um, if there was, a, you know, another war between uh, Gaza and Israel, for instance, um, uh, or, you know, I think that it would make the front page of the New York Times and it would have a better chance. But when things are quiet, um, I think Americans can more easily afford to ignore it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It, it was interesting to me, um, because looking at, at both debates, I mean, if, if the journalists are seeking to, to throw questions out there that are going to uh, be, be more, I don't know, uh, causing conflict amongst the, the candidates, uh, you know, Israel would be something that you would think they would be raising. The, the president has taken to uh, making references to Israel and his love of Israel and how anyone who disagrees on Israel is an anti-Semite. I mean, right in almost every tweet, um, almost every time he tweets now something controversial, he adds in a statement about Israel, um, either, I think, whether it's, you know, to inoculate him from criticism for being um, racist or being unfair, or to, to sort of try to sort of uh, lasso uh, progressives into, uh, into somehow agreeing with what he's saying. Uh, and what do you think about that? I mean, the the idea that this is something that people might throw in simply to to have Democrats fighting with each other. It's a good point. I mean, you could clearly see the way that the CNN anchors were trying to focus on issues, on healthcare, on immigration, where they thought they could get some division between candidates, and they succeeded in that. And you're right, Israel would have been another way of doing that, in that it is actually an issue on which there's some, I think, 
latent, at least, differences between Bernie Sanders, let's say, and on the one hand, and say Cory Booker or maybe Kamala Harris on the other hand. I, I don't know what went into their thinking. Again, I, I suspect maybe they just, again, they were just kind of focusing on what they thought were the dominant issues uh, for Democratic voters right now. Um, but you're right that, that sooner or later, the fact that, that Trump and the Republicans are so determined to try to use this issue against Democrats will lead journalists to, you know, force the Democratic candidates to respond. And um, I think how they respond will be really, really interesting and significant in this moment. We can already see that Bernie Sanders is laying out a, a line. He's kind of leaning into this conversation in a way that none of the other Democrats are. And once that becomes clearer to people, I think we, it will be interesting to see where the, how the other candidates respond. Yeah, I had a, I had picked up, a, uh, I think it was 24 hours ago or so, there was an article in some of the right-wing press about Jay Inslee, um, mm -hmm. who told a group that he would have opposed the, uh, the boycott resolution in the House that we had last week based on you know, freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And, and it was sort of thrown out there as red meat that someone might want to pick up. Um, I, I have to say, I mean, for me, at this stage, just as an observer, and I have no dog in this fight with any of the candidates, it's it's fascinating to see them actually, you know, discussing a whole range of issues and not being taken off track <laughs> by the questions like, you know, questions of like, what what would you have done in this resolution? I, I was actually pleased with that. Um, the this it feels like there's a very cynical manipulation of these issues these days. The um, and I don't know if you saw there was a really interesting. Um, broadside attack in one of the um, more right-wing papers yesterday against um, the congresswoman from Maine, Pingree, for her vote in the House, um, essentially suggesting that the real threat to Israel isn't the outspoken squad members who talk about Palestinian rights, but it's these middle-of-the-road Democrats who don't actually have strong feelings about Israel, and who've always just basically said, oh yes, I care about Israel, I'm pro-Israel, I'm pro-two states but then do things like refuse to attend um, Bibi's speech to Congress when he was brought in a few years back under Obama to grandstand against the Iran deal or speak out um, for free speech. And that proves now that they're the real threat to Israel. It was, it was an interesting framing, I thought. Um, looking at the other side of the equation, um, that's the Democrats. So you had a really interesting piece this week in the forward, which has, I think, sparked some, some attention and some debate about this, uh, how to understand some of the, uh, the, the, the bear hug uh, embrace that we've got for Israel and Israeli policies from some folks on the right in this country. Uh, you want to talk about that thesis a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I, and it came out of my fascination. I, mean, I think one thing you and I are both fascinated in about is the way in which Israel functions in the American political discussion in a way that no other country really does, in which discussing Israel is almost like not, as if people are not actually discussing a foreign country, um, but uh, it's a way of kind of talking about America by proxy. And that's really one of the things that really struck me coming out of the whole controversy about Trump and the send them back comments in which basically people responded when they were, when they were attacked, Republicans said, well, do you think Trump's a racist? And they said, well, these, these, these members of Congress who were attacking are anti-Israel. I mean, I actually don't think they're anti-Israel, but even if they are anti-Israel, 
it's kind of a non sequitur, right? I mean, this is an American debate, which has to do basically with race and identity and citizenship in the United States. What does their view about Israel have to do with it anyway, right? I mean, it's one thing to say they're anti-American. Okay, I mean, I think that's a kind of despicable and inaccurate charge, but at least there's some logic to it, right? It's like they say, it's that old kind of thing, you're not really patriotic, right? But to say you're not really patriotic towards Israel, you don't really love Israel, Israel's a foreign country, right? So that was kind of my launching off point. And I, I, um, I just, you know, I have a, a weird, I would say, unhealthy fascination with Ann Coulter. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, um, I really do think that Adios America, her, the book that she read, wrote in 2016, which I just happened to read very, very early on before, you know, even before Trump entered the race, is actually one of the most important documents to come out of the Trump era. It, it's really a bit of a Rosetta Stone to understanding the way Trump talks about it. I mean, for instance, if you just look at, for instance, Adios America, you see chapter after chapter, literally chapter after chapter on the subject of immigrants and rape, for instance, right? Um, you just saw her sign. She, she, like Trump, has this visceral instinct for the conservative, the right wing id. And she caught this before. And I think Trump's, Trump picked part of it up anyway. And she again and again and again, uh, Ann Coulter in that book and other places basically says, we want Israel's immigration policy. And she early on, I think, saw that is, immigration was going to be the new defining issue for the Republican right. I mean, if you, you look at polling, it's now three times as many Republicans say immigration is the top issue than anything else. Um, and I think it really has to do, although I don't think Republicans, obviously, most Republicans know chapter and verse about the way Israel's immigration policy and its, its political system functions, I think there is a sense that Israel has figured out this a kind of solution to this problem that, that is really tormenting a lot of Republicans, which is to say, how do we maintain a formal democratic system, which, and yet basically preserve white Christian dominance, which I think people you know, are talking about in more and more naked terms. And I, I, I wanted to argue that that was really a defining uh, reason that there was some, that, that for explanation for, the, for conservative love of Israel, and that some of the other arguments like, religiosity, you know, evangelical Christian love of Israel because, uh, you know, the Jews have to return to Israel so you can have the apocalypse, yada, yada, yada. It has a surface plausibility, but it doesn't take into account race. Because when you look at non-white Christians, even non-white evangelical African-Americans and Latino Christians, they don't see Israel. So religion, I think, cannot alone explain this without larger questions of race and identity. And so that's what led me to write the piece. Well, and it also, I mean, one thing I found I find very compelling about that logic, intuitively, that that certainly jibes with what I feel when I look at the the discourse around Israel. But it also jibes with the fact that there are so many things about Israel, which this very conservative core that that is so deeply deeply supportive of Israel and Israeli government that they are happy to ignore. Um, when we've had conversations, for instance, about healthcare and the the horrors of you know, you know universal healthcare, like well, you know, when we say well, you know, Israel has universal healthcare, well, we don't want to talk about that, right? Yes. You talk about you know LGBT rights in Israel, which is something that you know the progressive you know people like me right. celebrate. This is one of the things that right. I'm proud of, right. and it's one of the things that you know just don't talk about it. Yes. Um, the fact that you know that, that you can go on and on. I mean, the the element, the things about Israel that that progressives 
um, some the, the progressives celebrate correctly yes. are the things that are anathema to the worldview of a lot of the folks who are the most defensive Israel today. You know, the the right to to you know women's right to to choose, for example. Right. You know, pick your issue, uh, which sort of you know ig ignored. Well, what is the overarching thing that is so much bigger um, than all those things? And and I think you've put your finger on something something important. A lot of us sort of saw the first, you know, extremist face of this at the beginning of the Trump era, uh, when Richard Spencer said this explicitly. Um, but I think, you know, when, if you remember that at the beginning of the Trump era, he just came right out and said, we, we want what you have, um, speaking of Israel. And, and a lot of us sort of looked at that and said, well, this guy is such an extreme voice, we're just gonna file that. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna point that say that is indicative of anything that is such an extremist voice. Um, but the the picture you paint in the article um, is, is pretty comprehensive and looks at it more broadly. I'd encourage people to read it. It's at the, it's on the foreword. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pick up on something else you said, uh, which I think is really, really interesting, you know, significant, is that you talked about the way in which Israel, there are aspects of Israel um, uh, as a country that was founded on socialist principles, after all, yep. right, that historically have been quite appealing to the left. I mean, you think about Israel historically as a country saw itself as very much a kind of part of a, the Labor Party in Israel as the so part of the socialist international, right? Yep. I mean, and you think about the political environment in which a young Bernie Sanders goes and works on a kibbutz, right? And Bernie Sanders was the same Bernie Sanders back then, right? In terms of he was a radical lefty back then. But I think part of the reason that Israel functions so differently in American political debate um, and the reason that it is lost so much support among the left is obviously a lot of it is about the growing awareness of, of Palestinian rights and dignity and the importance of that. But I also think as the result of the Netanyahu years and Netanyahu's move towards making in Israel a country which is much more economically neoliberal, with much higher levels of income inequality, that that the the, the, the way in which Americans relate to Israel has become much more something focused on right-wing values about sovereignty, eth ethno-nationalism, and religion. And the, the, the left-wing connection, even in the Jewish community, you think about the decline of youth movements like Habonim and Hashomir Hatzair, right? Which were basically very proudly socialistic Zionist movement. I mean, I think Noam Chomsky was in Hashomir Hatzair. Right. Um, that is, if you compare, you know, that's, I think, part of the what's leading to this big ideological polarization around Israel is that decline of that strand of left wing socialist Zionism, which was once quite strong. Well, I mean, picking up on that, I mean, the, the sort of progressive ideas, the things, you know, it's not just progressive. I mean, we have a a post-World War II liberal world order, which a lot of us have become, become, become fascinated by, you know, musing on its potential demise. You know, here in the States, I have, as I've watched for years, sort of the, the rising illiberalism in Israel, and, and you watching it as well, um, and watching the, the parallel trends in this country, I have always believed in my heart that at some point there is a natural um, breaking point, right? When it, when, when in order, when someone says in order to be called a supporter of Israel or a friend of Israel, you must sacrifice this fundamental value. I thought this will be the breaking point. And I wonder if, you know, as we are living in the midst of this, you know, illiberal era internationally, you know, here in Washington, I, I, I draw attention to the, we already spoke, I already mentioned the resolution on boycotts that passed in the House last week. 
which was a non-binding resolution that effectively was delegitimizing and demonizing um, anyone um, who boycotts of Israel and settlements and anyone who engages in them. It's non-binding, so it's not unconstitutional on the face of it, but it certainly is, is the wind beneath the wings of further efforts. But in response to that, we saw Congresswoman Omar introduce a resolution reiterating the legitimacy of boycotts as a form of political free speech that is protected by the Constitution um, and reiterating the various successes and, 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 and these are successes that people have taken pride in for generations um, of US um, use of boycotts. And it's fascinating, this resolution, which doesn't mention the word Israel once, um, being being demonized as an anti-Israel um, attack, anti-Semitic, all of that. And looking at the co-sponsors, I think there's um, 14 now, 16, um, almost entirely from the CBC and CHC. So these are members of Congress of color, mostly. Um, you know, th this for me is a test of whether or not there is a breaking point. Um, and I gotta say, I'm not, I'm not sure still how it's gonna turn out, <laughs> this particular test, I'm worried. Yeah, it's 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 a fast it's fascinating to watch these two almost like these two opposing armies, you know, um, in the Israel debate, kind of skirmish and 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 try to find new tactics because they're so they're so different. Um, I mean, in the Democratic Party, there it, it's in the Demo in the inside the Democratic Party. Put aside the Republican Party, where you've got Kufi and this kind of big evangelical kind of white conservative base. In the Democratic Party, you basically, I think it's largely a fight between the top and the bottom, between um, on, in the kind of grassroots of the progressive movement, you know, in the United States, on campuses, in churches, you know, in kind of college towns. There's a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians. Um, and to a significant degree, being supportive of Palestinian rights has become part of the basket of different issues that, that make you a lefty. Um, and, um, and yet at the top, you know, in terms of the, the kind of people who kind of run the Democratic Party in Congress, run important committees, you know, play powerful roles in the Democratic Party, there's, they, they still, it's still very much, um, they have managed to hold the line very strongly against that. And I think that, you know, you're, you're right to point to the CBC, because I think that I was just listening to, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did an interview on a local New York um, radio show yesterday. She talked at some length about Israel and the Palestinians. And what just became, what was so clear listening to her, again, to talk about our earlier conversation, is that just as white evangelical conservative Christians' views of Israel are deeply impacted by their experience and their vision for the United States, that is true for many people of color as well. Um, and, and, and that's the way she speaks about it. But the question is, um, and, and as you see the Joe Crowley's of the world being replaced by the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, right? And you move from kind of ostensibly liberal Democrats who don't really fundamentally rock the boat to people who have a really genuinely activist and even kind of militant orientation. Um, I think that has really big consequences on that, on this issue. Um, but how fast it takes place, I, I mean, I think we would all agree that that's the trajectory. Um, but, you know, for people often whose districts have lots and lots of concerns and lots and lots of problems and, um, and, and may feel like they, you know, Israel is low down on the list of their constituents' concerns, even if it's something they believe in morally, are they willing to take the political risks? Can people like you and me create a, help to create a political environment 
where the risks are not as great. I mean, you know, right now the risks for a politician really are great. Just look at the challenges that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are facing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I guess the, the question for me is, you know, if, if for, for a very long time it has been possible, um, I know people, some people hate this term, if it's been possible for a lot of progressives to be progressive except on Palestine mm. and still defend basic progressive values and say that this isn't hypocritical, I feel like that space for them to is gone. That that space is gone. When when you are when members of Congress are now faced with a choice, will you sign on to a resolution that is a generic um, embrace of boycotts as free speech, consistent with the Constitution, consistent with longstanding policy in the U.S. going back to the birth of our country, or it in order to protect Israel from pressure, which people have said is unbearable and unacceptable, are you willing to throw out the concept of boycotts as free speech altogether? And I mean, that's really a, a Rubicon moment, right? I mean, what, what are you going to do? And I feel like those are the, the sort of um, uh, challenges that are being placed in, in front of progressives today. Yes. Um, and I, I think it's, I'm not sure people are, are ready yet um, to, to recognize that that's what this challenge is. And, you know, I've written about this, the, there, if we're if we're in a zero sum question, right? Either you are all in, and you will do whatever it takes to defend everything Israel is doing um, from any meaningful protests, even if what it is doing is not defensible under international law or under longstanding U.S. policy or U.S. law, or are you going to throw all of that out if necessary, right? Um, th that's a that's a tough that's a tough place to be. Um, and I look at I look at votes like we had in the House last week, and I I worry about where that yeah. goes. And I think you're sorry. I don't need to cut you off. I I, I think that, the, that there's something really important in what in what you're saying, which is that, and I know this is something I've heard you talk about very in the past, which is the way in which policies that are designed to shield Israel have much wider ramifications. Yeah. Um, um, in you know, in terms of American foreign policy, uh, in 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 terms of uh, you know, in terms of America's relationship with the United Nations and other America's relationship with international law. Well, in terms of Americans' domestic rights, I mean the yeah. the the, le the legislation that's been passed at the state level to um, insulate Israel from um, either boycotts of Israel or boycotts of settlements, because they're almost always written to do that. I mean, those are templates for quashing free speech at the state level for literally any reason anybody wants based on political ideology. I mean, it's a template. I went through and did the how many words would I have to change? Right. Um, it's right. astonishing. Right. I mean, setting aside any feelings that you have on Israel-Palestine, it's astonishing to me that people on either side of the political spectrum would be okay with this. Right. Um, right. And I, yeah, because, and I think this is also why it's important for us, even those of us like myself who consider ourselves Zionists of a certain kind to really push back against the conflation of, of, of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Because if you call anti-Zionism anti-Semitism, you're basically calling Palestinian politics anti-Semitic. Well, you're and calling that, the existence of the Palestinians a fact that the assertion of which is anti-Semitic. Yes, but, right. And so, and, and, and right, and that has huge ramifications. You know, one of the books that I remember reading in high school, my favorite books of all time, and they seem a little bit out of left field for this conversation, but had a huge impact on me was David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. And one of Halberstam, the point that Halberstam makes in that book, which I found really fascinating, thinking about mid-20th century American policy, is that he argues that 
the in that the debate American debate about China and the fact that the people who had said America needed to come to terms with communist China, the fact that they were basically destroyed in McCarthyism, ultimately created an intellectual infrastructure, a kind of a mindset that made it very hard for Americans to question our policies in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and, the, and I think that the Israel debate serves some of that function. If you look at American policy towards Iran, um, I mean, you're talking about the domestic constitutions, but in terms of the foreign policy, the con American policy towards Iran is so enormously and wildly destructive, right? It's, I mean, it's not only that we're doing enormous damage to the people of Iran with these sanctions, but basically by putting sanctions on all these countries around the world and denying them access to the use of dollars in order to make sure that they can't do any business with Iran, we are basically begging the most other most powerful countries in the world to find an alternative to the U.S. dollar as the dominant currency in the world, right? Yeah. Think about the implications of that for global, America's global position in the world. And that really ultimately is coming from a place in which I think it's deeply, we're, it's deeply destructive for America, far, far beyond the Israel debate. But a lot of the core of it is ultimately the adoption of Netanyahu's view of Iran as American policy in the Middle East. And then the consequences for American power are much, much broader and more dangerous than that. Well, I mean, to, and to, to zoom out even further, it speaks, I think, to a, a readiness to break down all the different pieces of the current international world order, if necessary, Yes. Um, in order to, you know, whatever, whatever policy you're supporting vis-a-vis -vis Israel, whatever Israel's policy is vis-a-vis -vis Iran, I mean, it, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I have been, and you know this, I've been trying to draw attention <laughs> to legislation uh, pending in Congress, which I think is very likely now to pass without anyone noticing, that would um, allow, um, the, the U.S. would effectively be legislating um, the end of sovereign immunity um, mm -hmm. in order to allow Americans to collect damages um, from Iran for the Marine barracks bombings in the 80s, bombing in the 80s in, in Lebanon, mm -hmm. which is a terrible thing. And, and the, the victims absolutely, uh, the victims and their family absolutely have a claim to justice. Um, is that something that means that we should tear down the entire international system, which is grounded in sovereign immunity? Ah, one could argue, not such a great idea. Um, right. and, and this effort on this particular law is, is being quarterbacked, I believe, by the same organization that is quarterbacking the efforts to use U.S. courts to sue the Palestinian leadership out of existence. Because, um, you know, if there isn't a recognition that Palestinians have legitimacy as a national, as a people with national claims, it's much easier to solve. Um, there's very little attention, I think, given to uh, the way that, um, that, that Israel-Palestine policy is being instrumentalized um, to undermine the world order um, in ways that are, I, I would argue, not not good for Israel, not good for American. I would say probably yes. not good for the Jews. Yes. Uh, yeah. And you know, one of the I think one of the most interesting actually people in this conversation now in this larger larger effort, and who's I think become a, become a very important person in the American right, put aside the Israeli right, is Yoram Hazoni, right? I mean, yeah. I read you know, if you read Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism. And he was, the, he was the organizer of this big new con con convention, conference they just had about this kind of new Trump era nationalist oriented right. Basically, he argues that what he calls imperialism is the great threat, by which he basically means international law. 
um, yeah. as far as I can tell, right? Um, and that's the, and, and the great and, and nationalism, by contrast, and sovereignty is the great defend is the great defender. Of course, not nation, not nationalism for groups that he feels like aren't really deserving of their own states, like the Palestinians. But um, but for but for you know for countries like Israel and Hungary and the United States and blah blah. And you can see how from this, um, you know, you build this. You, you create an intellectual architecture for the Orbans and Netanyahu and 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 um, and Modi and China, um, all of these these governments that are that are deeply uh, you know focused on sovereignty and dismissive of, of 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 human rights and any sense that countries that there's any international kind of obligation that countries bear towards their to. Uh, um, that the transcends sovereignty, and um, you know, and and that's that that's as you say, bringing down the very very fragile architecture we have um, that you know is an edifice based on the idea of human rights that there that there's a right to apply for asylum, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, and I think again, Israel is really is very much in in is at the heart of this. Well, I mean, it's very much a you you listen. I saw some of the speeches from that conference, and you know, it boils down if you take all the the sort of political science jargon out of it to a, a might makes right um, winner winner has the spoils you know to the victory go the spoils might makes right and accountable to nobody it's almost a you know, state of nature kind of thing yeah and you know I don't know if you have this experience Laura but I often have this also with this weird experience where like I talk to people on the Jewish right you know people I know people I get to know you know I interact with those people fairly often as I'm sure you do in, in so informal settings and you start talking about the Palestinian question and it is very striking that very often sometimes they'll say oh things aren't really that bad it's their own fault but very often they just say look this is the way of the world right like we when you win territory you know when countries win territory they don't give it back right when people fight wars and lose then they suffer the consequences, you know? And it's, it's a, this, you know, and people will say things to me all the time, like, you know, are we giving the land back to the Native Americans? You know, this, this kind of thing. And it's just, it's very striking to me that people basically find it so easy to move into this completely amoral framework, right? And I often think, well, if that's your general view, we have no, we, we should stop giving the Germans a hard time, right? I mean, like, or the Poles or anyone else a hard time, right? Like, if might makes right, then then there's no moral structure or you know value, you know ideal by which you have the right to criticize anybody else, right? It's just who has the power. Well, and it, it's particularly striking, and, and you know you're 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 a story. You know more about this than I do, but you know going back to you know the current world order came out of the 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 mess of World War II, right? The horrors of World War II. Right. We have an international system which was designed to never again use those words advisedly, never again permit things like that to happen. Um, the idea that in order to defend holding on to territory, um, expanding borders, doing whatever you want vis-a-vis -vis the population there that is unwanted, for Israel is going to be part of the, the cause of the breakdown of that, that post-World War II order is, you know, I irony is not, not, the right, not the right word. The, you know, sort of I, we're, we're at a moment sort of a big thoughts here. We've moved to big thoughts, which is always fun. 
um, I was talking to a colleague yesterday and, you know, he said something about, you know, we're living through a paradigm shift. And, and I, I absolutely agree. And I was saying, you know, there is something liberating when you realize that there are, there are you know, big things moving and, you know, there's almost, um, it, it's almost a, a great honor to live through a historical paradigm shift and see it and, and try to figure out how to, how to come out at the end of it in a better place. Mm. Um, but I think it, it's incumbent upon all of us to think about that because we are at this moment where it's possible to imagine um, on Israel-Palestine, for example, some breakthroughs, you know, with, you know, more of, as you said, the grassroots that's more in tune with justice and more concerned about Palestinians um, and, and some shifts, some beginnings of shifts in Washington. And then you balance that out with what we've been talking about here, which are some very, very powerful currents moving the other way. Um, you know, you want to you wanna muse a bit on big ideas for these last couple minutes? Well, I think certainly that we've seen a shift in both the way the, the kind of not the left and the right talk about Israel. I mean, the moderate left, even if you go back to Barack Obama, right? Or, you know, the, the, the language was always basically that the Israel's policies are bad because they're destroying it as a democratic and Jewish state, right? It was kind of the language of Israeli self-interest and, and a very, uh, and, and the language of democracy, right? Who Barack also talked about. That, that language is clearly fading on the left um, uh, and giving way to a, just a kind of more rights-based argument, right? That this is immoral. Um, and then on the right, you know, the language of Israel as this democratic beacon, I think, has given way to a much more, as I was trying to suggest in my piece, a kind of much more clash of civilizations, kind of Israel is a Judeo-Christian Western country, and which, like America or like America should be, and the Palestinians are on the other side of this of the civilizational divide. So I think that debate is, is, is quite different and very clarifying. What it actually, you know, what it actually means in terms of policy, I ultimately think, and you know, you and I have talked about this, that the shoe that has to drop and ultimately will be the most important is what happens on the ground. That, 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 that none of these debates in the United States will not really manifest themselves in, in really truly significant policy ways until until Palestinians move in some different way. I really think that the existence of the Palestinian Authority as a supposed state in waiting where there's no state coming and also a subcontractor for the occupation that allows Israel to control the West Bank at low cost and keeps conflict, keeps, you know, keeps Palestinian terrorism uh, or violence or just nonviolent resistance, whatever, uh, down, I, I think ultimately that is what's in some ways critically keeping us from fully moving to, into this new paradigm. When that breaks, then I think we really have the opportunity to start to, to move in, in, in this debate in different ways. Yeah, I, th I, I agree with you in terms of on the ground. I guess the, the, the other piece of it, you know, the, the paradigm shift is what is happening here, though, in terms of, you know, do, do progressives defend the you know, progressive values? Do they defend free speech? Do they defend the right to boycott? Do they defend the right of NGOs to operate? Um, and I'm, I, I worry the direction that that, that is going. Um, but I think this is a, it's certainly, if nothing else, we're getting, we're getting the clarifying moment that everybody always wants. Um, I have, uh, and I don't know how you feel about this, I have taken heart, um, this is maybe, to sound sarcastic, it's not meant to, but you know, in the years that I've been working on this issue, I've been arguing, you know, with people on my right and my left for years about Israel policy and whether it's defensible and whether things can, are good or bad. And increasingly, I'd say at this point, almost exclusively, the arguments that I get from the right to defend whatever it is Israel is doing 
are essentially, they, they boil down to not defending what Israel is doing, but saying, well, but someone else is doing worse. Or right. why, aren't you, why aren't you talking about other people? Right. Yeah, it's the, the, we insist that you hold Israel to the lowest possible standard. And I do think that is enormously clarifying. Um, when I was, uh, I was debating with someone on Twitter about, you know, the future of the West Bank and whether it was okay for Israel to annex. And they said, well, you know, look at Puerto Rico. And what they really meant was, you know, look at, um, you know, American Samoa or something, because Puerto Rico, they didn't understand, is not an ethnic uh, people deprived of vote for their ethnicity any more than I am deprived of my vote in Washington, D.C. for my ethnicity. But the idea that you're going to defend Israel essentially moving towards what sure looks like something that would be called apartheid if it were someplace else, um, by saying, well, America does it in American Samoa, which is our example of the most indefensible um, uh, uh, citizen situation we have, it, it's quite extraordinary. That's the best and only argument you've got left. And, right. and that seems more and more to be the case um, in, in arguing on the substance. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's exactly right. And also the other technique is to basically make it a conversation about you know, the motives of the people who run the BDS movement, for instance, or the you know, right. motives of Ilhan Omar. And you know, again, this is one of the things that I thought was so interesting listening just to this interview with Ocasio-Cortez yesterday. She made exactly that same point about the, about the border, right? And she was saying basically, on the one hand, you've got people like me, she was saying, who've actually gone and seen it for ourselves, right? And are focused on the, the horrific things that we've seen, right? And then you've got another people who basically want to play hide the ball in a way by basically talking about these questions about which language, which language you can use and whether it's worse here or there, or is it worse in Baltimore, blah, blah, blah. And I think there's such a parallel with the Israel conversation, right? Which Absolutely, is, yeah. Um, you know, I, I just... You know, I, I, I just wish we could, I could take all of these people and basically just drop them in the West Bank for a couple of days and say, this is the story. Look at what you see here. The, the language people use about it, the motives of some particular person who you distrust because they're Muslim or Palestinian or whatever, it's, it's not the story. The story is facing the, 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 fu the fundamental injustice that's actually existing on the ground. And that's, there's so much money and energy. Yeah, but, but Peter, that, but that runs up against, and I know this from when I went to Gaza a few years ago and came back and talked to people about Gaza. And that's where you hit the wall that says, I totally agree with you. This is unjust. This is terrible. But it's entirely the Palestinians' fault. And when the Palestinians love their children more than they hate Jews, then their lives will be better. Until then, what can we do? Right, but Laura, I think that it doesn't matter what context you'd give them. There's no fact that can penetrate that. That's if they're, yeah, when you're sitting in New York. But, but as you know, when you're actually there, that stuff just, just melts away, right? Yeah. Like, it just becomes ridiculous. You're going to look at actual Palestinians and who telling you the stories of, of how much they've suffered and are clearly decent, normal people just like anybody else. And you're going yeah. to see. No, it challenges it. You're absolutely right. Or take them to Hebron and let them see firsthand in Hebron. I was struck, and one of the things that I find enormously frustrating, because everybody, every debate now, somebody wants to reduce it to a question of BDS, and then they want to, the question of BDS, is it anti-Semitic, is it all that stuff. And I find there is no willingness to simply discuss the legitimacy of nonviolent tactic of boycott. Um, and that, I, I, the New York Times piece on what is BDS, I thought was really interesting and in some ways quite nuanced. But there was no space in it at all for the idea that there are, is a tactic of boycott that people use to express their political views, even if they haven't signed on to a movement, aren't following a movement's leaders, and aren't checking its website every day, and have not agreed with, you know, its philosophy. There's a difference between a tactic 
and a movement and and the conflation of the two has been enormously effective at effectively poisoning what is you know one of the most respected tried and true tactics of nonviolent protest that is all that has ever existed it's, it's been enormously right. effective right 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 so you have to ask folks well you know what kind of palestinian protest would you think was legitimate right I mean, or non-Palestinian, American, you know, right. how can Americans protest? If you, know, I, I, you and I, both, we've talked about this, you know, what is legitimate protest? Right, right. Um, no, I, 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 think, I think you're right. And, you know, and I think the, and, and the BDS movement has also, uh, it's become this boogeyman in, for an organized American Jewish community that, whose business model in many ways is based on these kind of boogeymen, right? And I, I think a lot of the, 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 the focus on, on BDS has in part to do with a vacuum that was created when Ahmadinejad stopped being the leader of Iran and it, Iran became a little bit less obviously kind of menacing. And also the fact that things have been relatively quiet on the ground. So you can't point, thank God, to you know, suicide bombings uh, in the way you could 15 years ago. And yeah. I think in that context that basically people have turned to the BDS movement how, and because it's basically it's the thing that you can scare Jews with. Let me ask you, I'm going to impose on you for like two more minutes and then I'll let you go because I know I said 12.15, for our listeners it's 12.17 now. Mm -hmm. um, the, I saw something on Twitter today, someone going after Ocasio-Cortez for talking about young, young Jews who are objecting to Israel and she mentioned if not now. And essentially this person accused her of, of misrepresenting um, American Jewish views, said that's sort of like talking about Latinos for Trump in, your, in Brooklyn. Um, you know, can you comment on sort of what you see as someone who is on campuses and doing a lot of speaking engagements, what you see in terms of, you know, energies at the grassroots level amongst Jewish younger people? Well, I think it's very significant that she mentioned, if not now, and I heard that interview, but, you know, again, because in my experience, if you talk to older, more established Democrats until very recently, they, they didn't know what if not now was. Right. I mean, she knows about if not now because it's a generational phenomenon and also because if not now is a force on the left. Right. A lot of those kids who are in if not now are also in Democratic Socialists for America, for instance, these, these institutions that she would have a connection to. The, 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 and she talked about a generational shift among American Jews, which outside the Orthodox community is absolutely taking place. I mean, it, it's just, you can, there's, there's clear data for it. Um, the, so that debate is, it, there is clearly a generational shift. And when you're talking about younger, non-Orthodox American Jews, I think she's right. The question is, to me, one of the big questions always been, do these young, non-Orthodox American Jews who are much, feel much more willing to criticize Israel than their parents and grandparents and are, are alienated by its policies in a lot of ways, do they care enough about the subject to ultimately bring political weight to bear, right? Um, because they are very Americanized kids and they have a lot of concerns about things that are happening in the United States. Um, and so do, you know, if not now is a, is, is a group who's actually organized, and, but political power doesn't come simply from the number of people you have in a poll. It comes from basically whether you have people who are dedicated enough to build the political institutions. And I think that to me is still, um, uh, a kind of a, a question we don't know in terms of millennial American Jews, I would say. Well, that is a great question to end on. Uh, so we're going to end that here. Thank you so much, Peter Beinart, for no, our listeners. You. you are listening to the Occupied Thoughts uh, podcast with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And we look forward to uh, coming back to you soon with another great conversation. Thanks, Peter, and goodbye. Bye. Take care.